Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. It can be found in the Pew Bible on page 783. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took her as his wife. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. I'm so glad you've joined us uh, for the second installment of our series called The Journey. Advent is a time when we prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ and We have been telling an old, old story here at Ebenezer Church, a story that we've heard before about Mary and wise men and and shepherds and angels. We've told this story before, but this year we're telling the old, old story with the help of some new characters, not in the form of people, but rather in the form of places. And you may remember that last week we talked about why it was important that Mary, that young lady, came from a little weed of a town called Nazareth. Today, we're going to shift our attention and pivot from Mary of Nazareth to a man named Joseph from the town of Bethlehem. Because geography is important in this series, I want to begin by locating the geography of our conversation today. So I want to show you this map. This is the same map we looked at last week. You may remember that last week we spent our time in the northern region of Israel, the region of Galilee. That's where Nazareth is. Uh, But today we're going to move towards the south-central portion of the nation of Israel. So let's bring up that next slide. This is the region of Judea. And if you look just to the west of the northern end of the Dead Sea, you see the city of Jerusalem. And six miles south of the city of Jerusalem is the city of Bethlehem. Or at least they were six miles away from each other in the time of Christ. Today the cities have grown to the point that they are neighboring communities. So we're going to spend our time this morning discussing Joseph and a, a guy from a place called Bethlehem. I, I just, I want to point out something by way of contrast. One of the things we talked about last week is that Nazareth, that little weed of a town, had almost no history to it. It was maybe a hundred years old and had a couple hundred people all, all huddled around a well living in caves when Jesus called that place out of obscurity. Nazareth had almost nothing in its history. Bethlehem has a powerful and storied history in its own right. It could not be more different from the town of Nazareth. The, the, the story of Bethlehem goes all the way back to the patriarchs. In fact, what do I mean by that? I mean, patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, Jacob married a woman named Rachel, who gave him two of his twelve sons. The oldest of Rachel's sons was a boy named Joseph, who's important in the story because his older half-brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Those slavers take him down into Egypt, setting the stage for the greatest saga in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. That was Rachel's older son. Rachel's younger son was a boy by the name of Benjamin. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 35 that it was while giving birth to Benjamin that Rachel died and was buried in the town of Bethlehem. And we might think, oh, that's an interesting tidbit. But in fact, it's much more than that. So to give us some perspective, I want to show you a, a couple of pictures. The first is this. So this is, these. what you see in this picture are the two holiest sites in Judaism. In the background of the picture, you see that, that gray building with the, the gold dome. That's the Dome of the Rock. It's built in the center of the Temple Mount in downtown Jerusalem. It is in this place that it was believed that Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac right there. It's worth noting, as we've talked about before, that what God did not ultimately require of Abraham on this mountain, God did require of God's own self on this mountain, the sacrifice of a son. The Holy of Holies was also built in that same place, right under the Dome of the Rock. This is the holiest place in the temple built by Solomon. This is where the mercy seat rested. This is where God would dwell. The Dome of the Rock is built on top of the holiest site in all of Israel. The second holiest site in Israel is in the foreground of this picture. You will see this wall. It's called the Western Wall. Sometimes it's called the Wailing Wall. In the year 70 AD, Rome attacked the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem had attempted to foment revolution and, and, and Rome was unhappy by this. So Rome came and they attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and they destroyed the city, absolutely destroyed it, and they left only one structure standing. It was the Western Wall. To this day, Jewish pilgrims go there and pray at this wall. When Andy and I went to Israel a few years back, I, I went there and, and you'll notice that there's a, a divider in the picture. Women pray on the right side, men play, pray on the left side. And men, when you go to pray at the Western Wall, you have to cover your head. So they will give you a disposable yarmulke to put on your head, which fits nicely over my bald spot, by the way. I just wanted to let you know. If we were Jewish, you'd never know I was balding. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing I did. I, so I went and I bought a bunch of these yarmulkes and I wore all of them on my head when I went to pray at the Western Wall and I brought them back and I gave them away as presents to people and nobody exactly knew how to receive that present back from me. They, this is, you wore this sweaty hat when you were in the middle of the desert. Uh, th- thanks, I guess. But anyway, these are the two holiest sites in all of Judaism. Now I would like to show you the, the third holiest site in Judaism. It's Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. On the right side, you see a picture of Rachel's tomb freestanding. It was taken in the early part of the 20th century. I mentioned just a few moments ago that Bethlehem and Israel, Bethlehem and Jerusalem have grown together, but Jerusalem is controlled by the Israeli government. Bethlehem is controlled by the Palestinians, and so they've built a wall. On the left side, you can see a picture of that wall just along the edge of Rachel's tomb. I want to put some gravity behind this for just a second. In Genesis chapter 35, verses 19 and 20, we hear these words. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephratah, that is, in Bethlehem. 
And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Here's the point. For thousands of years, pilgrims have been making their way to Rachel's tomb to pray. People were going to this place, even when Genesis was written, they were going to this place to worship God right there in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth had a strong and storied, beautiful history, but it doesn't end with the patriarchs. Nazareth is also the setting for the book of Ruth. And if you remember, the book of Ruth uh, is a book about a woman named Ruth. You nailed it. Good job. Well done, church. Uh, and, and Ruth marries into this, this family, the family of a woman named Naomi. Both Ruth and Naomi's husbands die, and they have little prospects. Naomi makes a decision that she's, she's going to go off in the desert and just waste away. And Ruth says, no, I, I won't have that. And so she makes this pledge to her mother-in-law. Uh, by the way, my mother-in-law is here this morning, and I would make a similar pledge if, if I needed to. Uh, but Ruth said to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you are, I will be there. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I'm going to live. And where you die, I'm going to die. It's beautiful, beautiful thing. So they go together back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. And while they're there, Ruth meets and marries a man named Boaz. They have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has eight sons, the youngest of whom is a boy named David, a ruddy little shepherd boy who becomes anointed king over Israel. The Ruth, Ruth is the great grandmother of King David and her story and David's story both take place in the context of this city of Bethlehem. David was incredibly important. As we, we all know, we're all familiar with King David and, and his exploits. He was, he was the second king of Israel. He was the first one to unite all the 12 tribes. But David's most important Legacy has nothing to do with politics. David's most important legacy is a legacy of faith. David is the one about whom much of the Old Testament is written, including a story about when as a 12-year-old boy he slaughters a giant. David's tale in terms of faith includes the construction of many of, of the Psalms. But the most important thing that happened to David is that David entered into covenant with God, or more specifically, God entered into covenant with David. God made a new covenant with David. And theologians call the covenant God made with David an unconditional covenant. As opposed to the covenant God made with Moses, where God gave Moses the law, and God said to to Moses, he said, if your people follow the law, then I will be their God. It's an if-then covenant. It's a conditional covenant. The covenant God makes with David is not a conditional covenant. God says to David in 2 Kings Chapter 7, and again in 1 Chronicles 17, God says, David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. There's no condition there. God dictates that's what's going to happen. And this covenant that God makes with David is quite literally called the covenant of the anointed one. You see, when kings were coronated in ancient Israel, oil was poured on their head to symbolize God's anointing. In Hebrew, the word anointed one means Messiah. God made a covenant with King David that one of his descendants was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever and that he would be called the Messiah. Nazareth was a little weed of a town. Bethlehem was a town of rich, rich history. 
Last week, I compared Nazareth to the community of Stafford. Because Nazareth was about 10 miles away from a big military base, just like we are. And Nazareth was about an hour's commute away from a really big city, just like we are. Today, I want to compare the town of Bethlehem not to the community of Stafford, but rather to a people called Ebenezer. Because God says something that's really important to the people of Bethlehem. They have this rich and storied history with with patriarchs and prophets and kings. But in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God says this, You, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Translation, God says, Bethlehem, you think you have a, a, a powerful history? You think amazing things have already happened here? Bethlehem, you ain't seen nothing yet. And it was true, wasn't it? God's greatest gift to the world was going to come to this place called Bethlehem. And it reminds me of a place called Ebenezer. And here's why. Because we have a tremendous history. This church was founded in 1856. 1856. In the middle of nowhere, by the way. Nowhere. Early on, this church was called the Church in the Woods or Woods Church because that's all that was around. It was the woods. This place called Ebenezer within 10 years would be a clinic, a, a makeshift hospital for both Union and Confederate soldiers during the Civil War. Interestingly, if you study the history of this church called Ebenezer, in the early part of the 20th century, that's when we began a relationship with Africa. We still have a really strong relationship with people in Africa through our connection to Bo Sierra Leone, but in the early part of the 20th century, it wasn't the old holy fuddy-duddies like us that initiated this, this connection with Africa. Our youth group, our youth group in 1920 decided that they wanted to help people who were less fortunate than them. So in 1920, our youth group covenanted that every year they were going to send $10 to uh, an orphanage in Africa. And that may not sound like a lot of money, but back then to kids, it was a lot of money. Ebenezer Church continued to grow and, and then something strange happened. Just about the time, just about the time, that that little church off of Vaughnville Road started to have stuff grow up around it, just when Stafford started moving their direction, God said to the people here, all right, it's time for you to move. Okay, God, where do you want us to go? I want you to go back to the woods. And that's what happened. We moved right here, and there was nothing around. There's no development around here when the people back in 1992 moved here. And when the people of Ebenezer made that historic decision to leave the Onville Road site and move to the Embry Mill site, we had 100 people in worship. This year, we're going to average 1,150. Here's what I want to say to you, church. Like the city of Bethlehem, we have a storied past. It's a powerful history, and lives have been changed. But I wonder if, like the little town of Bethlehem, Ebenezer Church might be willing to believe that actually our great days are not behind us. But together, to the glory of Jesus Christ, our great days are yet to come. Would you believe that with me? Because I believe that. I believe that transformation is going to take place because of you and the Spirit of God living inside of you. I believe amazing things are yet to come. That's what Bethlehem was told. You've got a great history, but watch out. Because I'm about to do something amazing. And I wonder if the people of Ebenezer might be willing to believe the same thing. I 
I love the story of Nazareth. It's a rich history. It's a beautiful history. There's so much to know about the history of Nazareth, which is why it's ironic that given the depth of story around Nazareth, we know so little about a man named Joseph who was asked to become stepfather to God's son. We know very little about Joseph. I mean, there's stuff we can imagine. Like, I grew up playing cops and robbers. I imagine that Joseph grew up with his little friends playing Messiah and Romans. You know, and it probably happened. But we don't know. I mean, we're just, it's conjecture. For example, there's great debate in the church, the Universal Church of Christ, about how old Joseph was when he and Mary uh, were married. In fact, I want to show you something that's kind of interesting. Got a couple of nativity sets up here. Because they're small, we put the picture on the screen for you. You can see that in one of them, Joseph is relatively young. And in the other, Joseph, he's more seasoned. Let's say it that way, right? Why, why is that? Well, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters believe in something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. What does that mean? It means that they believe that Mary wasn't just a virgin Before Jesus was born, Mary was a virgin her entire life. And the student of Scripture might say, but wait a minute, doesn't the Bible talk about Jesus having brothers and sisters? And in fact, it does. So where did they come from? Well, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters believe that Mary was uh, Joseph's second wife and that he'd had uh, a marriage before that his first wife had died and that that's where Jesus' brothers and sisters came from, that they were actually older half-brothers and sisters. Um, Protestants... So anytime an artist from a Roman Catholic background creates a nativity set, they tend to make Joseph look older. Protestants are not bound by that same belief. That's not necessarily something we adhere to, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And so when Protestant artists render their perspective on Joseph, they make him a relatively young man. So this is your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go home and look at the nativity scenes that you have in your house. And you can determine the, the theological forbearance of the artist who created this by looking at how old Joseph was. If he was an old man, likely the artist, he or she was of Roman Catholic origin. If it's a young man, they were probably Protestant. So all of this by way of illustrating the fact we don't know very much about Joseph. We don't know how old he was. We don't know if he'd been married before or or how many children exactly he had. The one thing we know about Joseph's personal life was his occupation. The Bible calls Joseph a tecton, T-E-K-T-O-N, a tecton, which means builder or mason or sometimes has been rendered as carpenter. Probably the best translation of tecton is actually day laborer, Uh, That's the way construction tended to work in the ancient Near East. People were employed for a day to do do work. It's worth noting that this is a word that is somewhat familiar to the word tecton to us because the leader of all the tectons was called the architecton, from which we get the word architect. But Joseph was never called an architecton. He was just called a tecton. He, He was a construction worker. And it would cause us to ask the question, why in the world would God pick this guy? This blue-collar guy, what is it that God saw in Joseph that 
that would cause God to entrust Joseph with the greatest gift the world had ever received. Maybe it's because Joseph was salty and Jesus would become the salt of the earth. What do you think? I don't know. Thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, maybe it's because Joseph was creative. And in John 1, we find that Jesus was the implement through which God created the world. But I, I wonder if it wasn't because God knew that the greatest task Jesus would have to fulfill in the course of his ministry was the construction of a new temple. Not a temple of, of wood and, and brick and mortar and stone but rather a temple of the Holy Spirit that would dwell in the hearts and lives of everyone who would believe. We know so little about Joseph. So very little. The only other thing we know about him that the Bible explicitly tells us is that he was a righteous man. And if we read the story, it's also it's also true that he was a courageous man, isn't it? Because if, if you think about it, Jason, J, J, Joseph was... was sub, subjected to to potential for great ridicule in the ancient Near East, the woman that he was engaged to became pregnant and not by him. Joseph had the right not only to dismiss her, he had the right to have her stoned to death. That's how serious an offense it was. But interestingly, Joseph chose not to, even though it would mean that Joseph himself could look like a fool to the people around him. Joseph was courageous enough to take a stand and to be called a fool for Christ. This brings me to two final thoughts I want to share with you about Joseph and Bethlehem. The first is this. I want to return to the name of Bethlehem for just a second. Bethlehem is an interesting name. Beth means house. Uh, Like Beth Israel is the house of Israel. But the word lehem is a homograph. What's that mean? A homograph is uh, when two different words are spelled the same and sound the same but have different meanings. An example of a homograph in English is the word down. It means I could lose altitude. I could go down. It also means the fuzzy underbelly of a bird like goose down. Lehem is one of those words. There are two words that are spelled the same and sound the same. They're homographs, but they have two different meanings. The first meaning of the word lehem is bread. So Bethlehem could mean the house of bread. And that could make sense because there were some farms in the area, and it's possible that Bethlehem got this reputation of making really good bread and even taking it to Jerusalem six miles away to sell it. This would be theologically satisfying because in John chapter 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. But, there's a second possible meaning for the word lehem. It can mean bread. It can also, in Hebrew, mean war. Bethlehem could be the house of bread, or it could be the house of war. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. What does that mean? Was Jesus advocating that we need to go to war against people who don't believe what we believe? No, absolutely not. In fact, later on in the story, when Peter tries to lop off somebody, when he does, he lops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Jesus ridicules him. He says, don't you know, Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Put it away. So what did Jesus mean 
when he said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think Jesus, in a very prophetic way, was recognizing that he would be a controversial figure throughout history. Jesus knew that the very simple assertion, the most basic assertion, which unites all of the universal Christians in the world, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that simple assertion could bring war to families, to nations. To bring war in our schools and in our places of work. We know so little about Joseph. But we know that in order for Joseph to be faithful to do what God had called him to do, it meant that he was going to have to do something incredibly hard. It almost certainly meant the fracture of relationship with with the good citizens of Bethlehem who he'd spent most of his life with. Because being faithful is never easy. And Jesus knew this. Because the bread of life knew that it was possible that in the context of our living out our faith, there were people who were going to be offended and saddened. But... We should live it out anyway. Here's one final thing I think we need to know about Joseph. I think this is, this is maybe the most important and fascinating thing about Joseph to me. In all of the Old Testament, did you know God is only referred to as Father 15 times? All 39 books of the Old Testament, God is called Father 15 times. And then Jesus spends time in the home of a builder named Joseph. And throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God is referred to as Father 163 times. What causes a transformation like that? You could say, well, maybe it's because Jesus was the Son of God and so he called him Father. Sure. But I would imagine, I would imagine that it was something of the way that Joseph acted out his fatherhood for Christ that caused Jesus to see God through the lens of this man called Joseph. I want to speak to parents in the room for just a moment. Fathers in particular, but all parents and grandparents who have some responsibility for young ones. Our children watch us every day to see how we behave, which can be terrifying to us, but they do. And if our chief social priority is to fit in, the chief social priority of our children will also be to fit in. But, if our priority is where God's priority is, If our chief desire is in line with God's to bring about the transformation of this world, then it's going to require us to take a stand, even though there are going to be people who won't be happy about it, and even though that stand should be loving and grace-filled, it's going to cost us something. We should take a stand nonetheless. Joseph was willing to take a stand, even though he was ridiculed by the people in Bethlehem. He was willing to take a stand, and Jesus watched him. And it impacted the way Jesus saw God. 
I was in third grade when my dad accepted Christ. I was there at the church, Seymour Community First Church of God, just outside of Sevierville, Tennessee. The pastor had done his thing and had opened the front of the church for response, and I walked my dad, watched my dad come down the aisle, and he knelt in the altar, and he started to weep. I didn't see my dad cry very often as a kid, but he started to weep. And he got up a new man. I mean it. Because two things happened almost immediately after my father accepted Christ. The first thing was, <laughs> uh, dad invited us to change churches. He wasn't trying to be mean to anybody, but while he was being fed at the little church we were at, didn't have the resources to provide programming for his children that actually helped his young people, his, his children, his sons and daughters, learn about Christ. And so my dad moved us to a new church. I'm so grateful he did because in that place is where my spiritual development started to thrive. The second thing my father did is um, soon after accepting Christ, he quit his job because he felt that he could not do what he was being asked to do in the way he was being asked to do it and still remain faithful to Christ. So even though it meant some potential hardship for my dad and even his family, my father took that stand. My dad's not a perfect guy. No father is perfect. But when my dad accepted Christ, he took a stand. And you better believe that his little boy was watching. Nazareth was a town of rich history. A historic place touched by patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and kings. And God asked those people in Bethlehem to recognize that even though their history was amazing, that the greatest days were yet to come. And those great days were ushered in in part, thanks to a man named Joseph, who lived such a powerful life in front of his son Jesus, that when Jesus grew up and started to teach the world what God was like, Jesus used the lens of Father to do it. We know so little about this ordinary man. We know that he left an extraordinary impact on his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that we will recognize that we are called by God to stand up, to take those grace-filled, loving stands in this world because our children are watching. And we are the lens through which they are going to find God. Thank you for being part of this installment of the journey. I sure do hope that you'll come back and join with us next week as we continue this Advent series. But until then, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this story of vulnerability where where you came to the, the world with nothing, literally nothing. I thank you for a man named Joseph, about whom we know so little. 
But a man who was willing to take a stand, even, even though it cost him so much socially, he took a stand for you. He was willing to be a fool for Christ. And because of that, his son taught the world to understand you through the lens of fatherhood. God, I thank you for that little town of Bethlehem and its rich history. I, I thank you, oh God, that here at Ebenezer we can understand something about having a rich history. I pray you'd help us to believe, oh God, that our best days are yet to come that the greatest opportunity we're going to have to transform lives and bring glory to your name is still down the road. Thank you for these people. Thank you for our story found in Scripture, for the way it guides us and leads us towards that glorious night. In the name and to the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. All of God's people said, Amen.